Well, good evening. I didn't hear uh, Nick's message this morning, so if it's a repeat, it's not my fault. My thoughts this last few weeks have been on our personal testimony, um, our testimony to the community, our testimony to um, our coworkers, uh, to family members, uh, to members of this assembly, and to the world. And if, if someone was to be asked to describe you spiritually, what would they say? How would they describe you? Um, we often worry about what our testimony here, um, what our testimony here is in, in the assembly and in, amongst believers, um, but what, what is our testimony out, outside of this place? Uh, the world tells us not to care about what other people think. You know, you be who you are, um, and, uh, and you're not supposed to um, worry about what other people think or, or, or how we act. Jesus cared what other people thought of him. Um, as Russ mentioned this morning, he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? He was concerned about his testimony. He was worried what people were, um, would say of him. Um, obviously, we know he maintained a perfect testimony, and um, there's no better example that we have in the Bible than that of our Lord and Savior. Um, he, he had an absolutely perfect, flawless testimony, both to his close disciples, the ones that were intimately um, and saw all the ins and outs of everything that he went through, but he also had a perfect testimony outside and in the world, and that's what we're going to be looking at this evening. So if we can all turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Tonight we're going to be looking at Christ's testimony to unbelievers. What did, the, what did unbelievers, people that knew nothing of who he was, what did they have to say about him? John chapter 7 and beginning in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where, I'm, where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he has said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, many of the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? 
So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. And turn over to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and beginning in verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourselves and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we, indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And lastly, in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, and beginning in verse 37. Mark chapter 15, 37. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out like this and breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Let's just look to the Lord one more time. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we um, thank you once again for the time that we had this morning to remember your son. Father, to remember his death. Father, the suffering that he went through. Um, Father, that he is our good shepherd and that he laid down his life for the sheep. Um, Father, now as we look at his character, his conduct, and how he lived on this earth, Father, we pray that um, we would be imitators of him. Father, as we... um, study more and learn more about him, Father, that um, we would be more and more transformed into the image of his son or your son. Father, we just um, lift this time into your hands and ask your blessing upon uh, your word in your son's name. Amen. In these uh, three cases, these men only spent a couple of hours with the Lord. Um, Some of them perhaps only a few minutes. Um, And yet they were all able to see a divine difference in this man. If we compare our testimony with Christ and see what other people said of him, um, it's men who at at the time of their statement were outside of the faith. These were men that hadn't followed Christ day to day. These weren't disciples. These were just people that um, came in and out of the Lord, our, our Savior's life. Um, the centurion um, wasn't there that long. The thief on the cross, perhaps a couple hours. Um, and we don't know how long the officers um, sat and listened to his words. Um, but we know it wasn't a, an extended length of time. And um, we need to compare our testimony with that of our saviors. Um, the, the thought of if you were to draw a line across a wall and try your hardest to keep it straight, Um, And if you step back and look at it in and of itself, it might look fairly straight. But it isn't until you put a level or a ruler up to that line that you see how crooked it is. And that's what we're going to do this evening. We're going to put the the level or the ruler um, up to our our lines this this evening. Um, The officers that were sent um, by the Pharisees in John um, chapter uh, 7, 
Their testimony of Jesus was no man ever spoke like this man. That, that's what they said of him. What, what did Jesus say that would pre preempt this response? Um, did he say anything that was out of the ordinary? Um, it would be, it'd be a good study for us to just simply study the words that Jesus spoke. Uh, we know that the entire scripture is God-breathed, um, but if we looked at specifically what Jesus said while on earth, I think that would be profitable for us all. Um, so what does the, the word of God say about our speech or what we are to say, how we are to talk? Um, if you look at Colossians chapter 4, I'm going to take off my jacket. Colossians 4 and verse 6. It says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. A verse and, and, and a thought that's been very convicting to me is, um, what, what are the words that I'm saying each and every day? How am I responding to people? What, what, what do I talk about at home? Or what do we talk about at home or in the workplace? And are they the same things that we talk about here while we're in the, the, the gathering of the assembly? Um, do we talk like everyone else? Do we laugh at their jokes? How should we talk? What should we be saying? Here in, in Colossians, Paul reminds us of, of how our speech should be. It should be grace seasoned with salt. Um, the, the word grace here um, refers to that, uh, the, the idea of being courteous or being humble and being Christ-like. Um, the opposite of this would be gossip, um, frivolity, uncleansliness, and bitterness. What are, what are we saying? What, are, what comes out of our mouth each and every day? Grace seasoned with salt. Salt here, as we all know, is a picture of something that, that heightens flavor. We all know that french fries taste better with salt. And our conversation should be something that heightens the flavor. It shouldn't be dull. It shouldn't be boring. And it should be Christ-centered. It should be worthwhile and profitable. But also the idea that we have here is uh, salt is a picture to us of wisdom. So how are Jesus' words grace seasoned with salt? When Jesus, um, Jesus' words to the woman that was caught in the act of adultery, he said to her, neither do I con condemn you, go and sin no more. Here we have grace combined with salt or seasoned with salt. Neither do I condemn you, that's grace. Go and sin no more. And that's salt. Um, not only should our words be grace seasoned with salt, they should all be, also be acceptable to God. In uh, Psalm 19, verse 14, and for the sake of time, I'll read it. It, said, let, it says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. It's not only what we are saying, but it's also what are we meditating on? What are we thinking about? And are they acceptable to God? 
Well, how do we do this? How do we make our words acceptable to God? And um, how do we make our thoughts acceptable to him? In James chapter 3, and we'll all turn there. James chapter 3 is um, the... James describes uh, the tongue in a, in a special way. He calls the tongue... Uh, here we have the, the untamable tongue. In James chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in the horse's mouth, that, we may, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at the ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For any, every kind of beast and bird of... Um, of reptile and of creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man has tamed, um, can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth produce blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grape vine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt and fresh water. One of the smallest members of our body, and yet we see here in, in James that it can defile our entire body. Um, people uh, judge us by our words, what we say. Um, oftentimes, we're in contact with people for only just a few minutes. Uh, maybe even a couple hours, and then they're gone out of our lives forever. And what did they hear us say during those few short moments? Words are the one things that once they're spoken, you can't get them back. They're out there. Now in verse 8, it says, But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Does that mean we're hopeless? That we're always just going to say whatever's on our mind and just, um, you know, as, as the term goes, vomit of the mouth or of the tongue. There is hope, um, but it's not found in us trying harder. Um, in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, um, Jesus brings forth an interesting truth here. He's speaking to the Pharisees. And in 12, and beginning in verse 33, he says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the treasure um, brings forth evil things. But I say to you, that for every idle word men speak, they will give an account 
in the day of judgment. Um, and, and here in Matthew, um, Jesus is um, using the example of a tree to teach the Pharisees a lesson. Um, Jesus had just performed a miracle of healing um, or of casting out a demon, um, which was a good thing. But the, um, the Pharisees had turned it into an evil thing by saying, um, oh, he, he's um, from Beelzebub, or by the ruler of the demons, he's able to cast out the demons. So Jesus uses this picture of a tree, and he says, if it's a good tree, then it's going to bear good fruit. And we know that throughout Jesus' entire life, all he did was bear good fruit. Um, and he says you can't have either or. Um, but, but in verse 34 is the thought that I'd like to share. He's, he says, at the end of that verse, he says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If our heart and mind are full of evil things, what's going to come out? If we're constantly putting evil things, evil thoughts, um, evil things before our eyes, what's going to come out? Um, not only that, we know that in Jeremiah chapter 17, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? A famous verse. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So if our heart is desperately wicked and we're pouring evil things into our mind, what's going to come out? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, but, um, but on the contrary, in, in verse, in verse uh, 35, it says, a good man out of good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And that's the hope. If we are constantly pouring good things into our mind and into our heart, what's going to come out? Again, this isn't done in our own strength. The psalmist reminds us in the, in the psalm we read earlier, Psalm 19, it says, He is our strength and our redeemer. It's not out of our own strength. If it, if it is, we are going to fall and we will fail. And I, we could spend the rest of the evening going over testimonies of when we tried in and of ourselves to do the right thing and fell flat on our face. Um, but as soon as we recognize who, where our strength comes from, we are constantly reminded in Scripture by various uh, men where our strength comes from. Uh, Moses in Exodus 15 says, The Lord is my strength and my song. Uh, Moses leaned on our, and depended on God throughout his entire life. Um, throughout the uh, time in the wilderness, leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, he depended on the Lord. In fact, he even depended on the Lord when he didn't know the words to say. So, when we're stuck, when we're having a, when we're having a hard time controlling our tongue and contain, uh, taming it, rem remember that our, our strength comes from the Lord, and he can give us the words to say uh, David in 2 Samuel 22, verse 3, it says, The God of my strength in whom I will trust. And at the end of that, in that, that same chapter, he says, God is my strength and power. He makes my way perfect. That's where our strength comes from. That's where our power comes from. It comes from the Lord. Um, David wrote psalm after psalm about um, strength coming from our Lord. And in the New Testament, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, And he said to me, speaking of the Lord, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength 
is made perfect in weakness. So when we're weak, when we're having a hard time, when we can't control our tongue, um, when we don't know what to say, we look to the Lord and we put good things into our mind. Um, so how do, we, how do we tame the tongue? We lean on the Lord, but also at um, the end of James in chapter 4, um, in verse 7, he says, Therefore submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So how are we to tame the tongue? Thanks. We are to tame the tongue by submitting to God. How do we submit to God? Like the old um, Sunday school song goes, trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust and obey God's word by submitting to him. It also says, resist the devil. Don't give him that stronghold in your life. What are the strongholds that the devil can take control of? Well, there, as we looked at um, probably a year or so ago, it's those high places in our lives, the places of worship, um, places that um, the devil can easily come in and, and distract us for hours, pump our minds full of garbage. Um, there was the, uh, the, the one man that um, was all excited about ordering this new TV, and when the delivery truck pulled up, um, the side of the delivery truck said, bringing the world into your home. And so he sold the TV the next day. He got it out of there. Um, and that's what we're doing. When we allow these things to control us, it says to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It says, draw near to God. And there's a promise attached to this. It says, he will draw near to you if you draw near to him. God's way, God is a perfect, perfect gentleman. He will not force his way on any of us. Um, but it's, it's when we draw near to him that he draws near to us. And um, how do we do so? Through prayer, through reading his word. Um, the closer we all are in fellowship with God, the more we will be like him. Okay, we know that what we put into our hearts and our minds and what we ponder on and what we meditate on will eventually come out. Um, there's that old Sunday school song, Input, Output, the, the old computer song. And um, it's, it's what goes in must come out. Um, so if we can turn uh, to um, Philippians chapter 4, Paul gives us um, an alternative Paul shows us what we should be focusing on. Uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever, uh, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. There's one topic and one person who fits all these criteria, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
the, uh, the more we focus on him, the more we meditate on him, the more um, uh, we will be able to control these members, control our tongue, control our thought life, meditate on him. Um, Paul also reminds um, Timothy in his first epistle to him, he says to, um, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by the prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things and give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Meditate on these things. Notice that he also brings up, he says, in word. What, what, what are you saying? Um, when, when we... When we make ourselves known in the workplace and in the neighborhood that we are Christians, all of a sudden there's a giant hot spotlight right on us. And every step we take will be analyzed and reanalyzed. And well, why'd you say that? Well, why'd you do that? You're a, you're a, and like they always say, you're a hypocrite. You say I need to do this, but you do it anyways. Um, and it's because they're looking for a way to justify their actions. They don't realize that they too are sinners. Um, but so Paul reminds Timothy, he says, when you're, when you're in these places, when you're in the assembly, when you're out in the world, be, um, be an example in word. He also says in conduct, your behavior and your attitude. What happens when things go wrong in the workplace or at home or whatever activity we're in? How do we act? How do we respond to these things? It says in love. That's our motivation. That's what we should be, that, that's the reason why we should be doing these things because we love these people and we want to see them come to the Savior. It says in spirit. Um, are we excited? Is there a zeal in our life about the things of God? And do other people see that zeal? You know, we often see a Christian that's, that's newly saved and it's like a firework, you know, they're straight out of the chute and they're running like, like a horse out of the, out of the, out of the gates. Um, and then we all sit back like, oh, it's gonna, it's gonna fade. You know, it's just, that's, that's, that happens to everybody. But people, people notice that zeal and that, that speaks to people. When you're excited about the things of God, that, 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 that is an example to others. He also says in faith, are you faithful? Are we faithful? Are we steadfast? Can people depend on us in the assembly and out in the workplace? And then finally, in purity. Um, this should characterize um, both our acts, what we do, and our motives, why we're doing it. They should be pure. It's not only what Jesus said while he was here, the grace that was um, seasoned with salt, all those words, those beautiful words, but it's what he didn't say that spoke to people. I'll read it for the sake of time. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, when Jesus is before Pilate, he says, Immediately in the morning, the chief priest, um, I apologize, Mark chapter 15. Immediately in the mor morning, uh, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes 
and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He said, He answered and said to them, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you not do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. The same person that spoke the world into existence. In, in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Not only that, but the same person who holds it all together. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. He was silent before his accusers. He didn't say a word. Um, Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed and he, he was afflicted, yet he opened on his mouth. It wasn't that he pled the fifth just to, um, so that he didn't incriminate himself, so that he didn't get in any trouble. In fact, his, he could have talked circles around each and every one of those people. And he could have spoke his way right out of custody. Um, he could have proven his, his innocence by just speaking, just saying something. He could have proven that they were, they were wrong. But he was silent. His silence before his accusers was deafening. Why did, why did Pilate marvel at his silence? Why, why, was he, why did this speak to him so much? It wasn't just that he was silent, although this is out of the ordinary. Typically, when you take somebody to jail, everybody's innocent. They all, these aren't, you know, the, the, the famous line is, these aren't my pants. You know, you find something in somebody's pants, these aren't my pants. They always have some sort of um, way to defend themselves. And when you go to court, it's even more um, theatrical. They, they always have their side of the story. The reason why this spoke so much to Paul, or to Pilate, was that he knew he was innocent. He knew he was innocent. Um, I won't read it for the sake of time, but in, in John chapter 18 um, and 19, Pilate says three times, I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in him. He's innocent. I don't want to do this. I'm washing my hands of this situation because he's innocent. And yet, he was silent. So what's our response when we are wrongfully accused? How do we respond? Are we, really, are we quick to justify ourselves and to defend our actions? Or are we, um, or perhaps should we follow the steps of our Lord? In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, it says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Perhaps the less we speak, the more we'll say to those that we're witnessing and ministering to. The next, the next person I'd like to look at is the thief on the cross. So if you look, look at uh, Luke chapter 23 once again.
Luke chapter 23, in verse 39, uh, the end of verse uh, 41, I apologize, that the phrase, the, the thief defending the Lord on the cross, he says, but this man has done nothing wrong. His testimony of our Lord was similar or was the same to that of Pilate's, although we know that um, the thief um, is ultimately converted because of this. Not only did Jesus do, he didn't do anything wrong, but everything that he did was good. Everything. Um, he was that tree that, that produced good fruit. Um, looking at the testimony of the crowd after he healed the deaf mute by the Sea of Galilee, they said, um, it's in, in Mark chapter 7, verse 37, it says, And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. His conduct was perfect, lacking nothing. What was his motivation? In John chapter 4, verse 34, he said, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That was his motivation. That's, that was what got him up in the morning, to do the will of the Father. Um, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, it says, um, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written, to do your will, O God. Um, his desire was to do the will of the Father, and he did it perfectly, fulfilling the law. Um, as it says in, in, in Matthew, not one jot or one tittle will be left. So what motivates us to live a godly life? Do we want to do God's will, or do we want God's will to align with ours? If God would just get, get on board with what we have planned, then everything would be okay. Um, Jesus wanted and did God's will. Um, lastly, we're going to look at the centurion. Uh, and uh, So if you turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, once again, in verse... Um, 37 and 39. Um, the centurion, um, as he's sitting beneath the cross and as he's looking at all the things that transpired that day and as Jesus breathed his last breath, this was the testimony of the centurion. Truly, this man was the Son of God. This is from a Roman centurion. This isn't from a Pharisee, one who would have been well-read in the, in the New Testament or in the Scriptures. This is... I mean, and, and we, we, we get this picture painted um, in history that Romans were just barbaric and just evil. And, and, and we see even a picture of that during the crucifixion, mocking Jesus, beating him. Um, but we have this Roman centurion that's just sitting there and watching these things, watching the Lord and how he reacts to all the, 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 the things that happened that day, and then watching him die. And he says, truly, this man was the son of God. Um, 
I'm sure he heard the words when Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. And he also probably heard Jesus making provision for his mother while hanging on the cross with, with John. And then he also probably observed and heard the thief and his conversion on the cross. And after all these things, he says, truly, this man was the son of God. How did he know? How did he know? He observed the actions. And, and again, like we said earlier, this was only for a few minutes, maybe a couple hours that he saw this. It wasn't days. It wasn't weeks. He didn't sit, sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to his teaching for the last three years. He just observed him for a few hours that day. So again, as, as we're reminded, in the workplace, in, at school, at home, in the neighborhood, when we only see people for a couple minutes a day, what do they say about us? How, do they, how would they describe us? What did, what did he see? How are we to have this same testimony? In, in uh, Philippians 2, 14, it says, Do all things without complaining and disputing. The Lord, and I, I want to say this reverently, had every right to complain. He was, he was being persecuted and, and, and treated wrongfully and, and accused wrongfully, and he was innocent. But he didn't. It says, do, th- do all things without complaining, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation among you, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. What made Jesus' actions so special to that Roman centurion? Well, it, it starts in, in, in Matthew chapter 9, and, and again, for the sake of time, we, I'll, I'll read it. It says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were... Um, they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Perhaps the, the centurion looked into the eyes of our Lord and, and saw that love. We, we, we know what that's like. We've, we've experienced that before. You look at somebody and you just know just by looking at them that there's a difference there. But he was moved with compassion. Today we, we volunteer for things. We go to homeless shelters. Um, we volunteer at orphanages, and, and what's our motivation? Why do we do it? Either for extra credit when we're in college, um, for community service because the judge told us to, or for the, uh, the attaboy on the back, or, or to make ourselves feel good. That's why we do these things. Jesus healed, fed, and loved those who he knew would nail him to the cross one day. What's our motivation for helping and serving people? Do we do it because we should or, or because we have to? Or do we do it because we have an unconditional love for these people, the way that God loves them? And people recognize genuine love. Um, who are we supposed to love? Um, the Bible is very, very clear. Um, you're to love your brother. You're to love your neighbor. But then when Jesus comes, he 
brings forth a groundbreaking truth. And he says, um, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus tells them to love their enemies, to pray for those that are persecuting you. And Jesus practiced every word that he preached. On the cross, as he hung there, he prayed for those that were persecuting him. We have a, a physical example of, of someone loving his enemies. Um, there's the, the story that Bill McDonald tells of Theo McCauley. Um, he's the father of Ed McCauley, uh, one of the missionaries that was killed in Ecuador. And one night, Bill and Theo were praying for the um, Emmaus Bible College. And as they're praying for the college, as the night went on, um, Theo's prayers started going back down towards Ecuador. And he prayed that he one day would be able to, to put his arms around the people that killed his son and tell them that he loves them and that they would get saved. Well, that prayer came true. Um, as we know throughout through the stories and biographies, um, some of the men that actually physically killed those, those men that day um, got saved. And Theo made a trip down there and was able to embrace um, embraced the people that killed his son and told them that he loved them. And that's loving your enemies and praying for those that persecute you. Jesus says in, this, in the last part of this portion that we just read to be perfect. He says, be perfect, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, what happens when we're not perfect? What happens when we fall down in front of people? Well, the first thing we do, we know, 1 John 1, 9, we confess the sin and make it right before God. The second thing we should do is James chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So first thing you do, you make it right before the Lord. The second thing you do is you go to that person that you stumbled in front of. Now, perhaps it wasn't even an offense towards them, but you messed up in your walk and you know that that ruined your testimony before that person, you go to that person and you apologize. Another example we have is a story of, of, a, of a brother named David Aikman, and he was a, um, a newspaper, um, he worked for a newspaper magazine in Hong Kong, and he was the senior um, editor of that magazine. And on his staff, there was a, the, the chief, the bureau chief, um, and um, he worked with this man every day and this man had a foul mouth, um, constantly using profanity, um, which is one thing, but then he would use the Lord's name in vain. And um, he worked closely with David, and, and, and at, David got to the point where he just couldn't take it anymore. And, and one day during a meeting, he just said, excuse me, I don't like the way that you're talking about the Lord. And he sat back in his chair, and the man said, well, I don't like the way you, talk, you said that to me. 
And so David goes home that night and kind of feels good that, you know, I stood up for the Lord and I, you know, rebuked this man for using his name in vain. But then as he thought about it, he realized that he didn't do it in love and that he ruined his testimony before that man. So a couple days went by and, and it was very awkward tension in the office and he knew what he had to do. So he went to that man and he said, I got two things to tell you and then I'll go. The first thing is, um, there's been a breakdown of communication between you and me and it's, and it's my fault. I messed up and I was wrong and I shouldn't have talked to you the way I talked to you. Now that's the first mile. The second mile he did was he says, and from now on, whatever story comes in, you get first dibs, and I'll take whatever's left. And, um, and then he was able to walk away with a clear conscience before that man. And later on that, that week, he heard of a, of a businessman's breakfast where an executive was going to be sharing his testimony. Uh, it, was a, it was a Christian breakfast. And he went to this, this, this chief, this man that was in his office, and he invited him to the breakfast. And um, the man who would have never gone before said, yeah, I'll go. And um, after the testimony was given, the man got saved. So our conduct is vitally important in the workplace and in the neighborhood and in our families. Um, in Matthew 5:16, it says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is what the centurion did for our Savior. He was able to say, to look at what Jesus did throughout that day and say, that was the Son of God. He was able to glorify the Father. Everything he did was perfect. His light shines so bright. Um, may those that look on us may they be able to say the same thing. May our light so shine before men that they may see um, our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you um, once again for your son. Um, Father, for the perfect example that he left us. Father, that he came to do your will, that there was not one jot, not one tittle that was left Father, that he fulfilled the law. Everything he did was perfect. Father, every answer that he gave was perfect. Father, we pray that you would show us how to be imitators of Christ. Father, that we would um, put um, good things into our mind. Father, that um, we would remove these high places, these strongholds in our life that um, Satan can come in and, and grab hold of, Father. We pray, Lord, that um, we would be, um, that we would fall more and more in love with your son. And that as we do, Father, that um, every word that comes out of our mouth will be grace seasoned with salt. And Father, that we will have a love for these people that are around us. Father, these, these lost souls that are on their way to a lost eternity, Father, that we will have a love for them the way that you love them. Father, May this be on our hearts all week. Father, we pray that as we leave the Lord's Supper and the remembrance meeting in the morning, that we do not forget what he did for us. Father, that this would be on the forefront of our minds each and every day. Lord, we ask that you um, be with us as we leave tonight and for the rest of the week. Father, we also um, pray earnestly for our, 
of the Aaron's family this evening. Father, we lift up our brother Will into your hands. Father, we know that you love him more than we love him. And Father, that you care for him more than we care for him. Father, we, we rest in the fact that, we, that his hands um, are in the, uh, the hands of the great physician. Um, Father, we ask that you'd be with the doctors as they test. And Father, that you would put your healing hand upon him and be with the family as well. Encourage them and strength, strengthen them throughout this week. In your son's worthy and precious name, amen.